Okay, the kids are dismissed. Well, you heard about our friends giving yesterday, and I didn't make it, but my son Ezekiel, was. we were driving to church, and he said, well, Pastor Chris has a leash for his chicken. Yeah, not only does he have chickens, but he has a leash for his chickens so he could take the chickens for a walk down the street. And then, and then Ezekiel said, well, that's pretty much a Pastor Chris thing. I said, yeah, you're, <laughs> that's pretty much true. So for all you, um, I'm really happy to have the visitors, but, you know, full disclosure, our pastor has a leash for his chicken. <laughs> Just don't walk it near Bob's dog because it'll eat, eat the chicken, have a little snack. Okay, well, we have a... Um, we're continuing in our series in the book of Romans, a first century faith for the 21st century. Uh, Martin Luther said that Romans is the purest gospel. Calvin said, if you understand Romans, you understand the whole of scripture. Packer said that all the books in the Bible lead through Romans. And if you can get the book of Romans inside of you, there's no telling what might happen. John Piper said, The most important theological work is the book of Romans and our own Pastor Chris, chicken in tow, (laughs) who models his own ministry after Paul, who did not have a chicken on a leash, said that Romans is Paul's magnum opus. And so we're in the book of Romans, and now we're entering the heart of the book of Romans, um, Romans 6 through 8. And this is the clearest gospel explanation of how a sinner destined to hell can become a saint destined for heaven. Now, I don't know if Romans 6 is the most important chapter in the Bible, even though some commentators say that it is. I think all scripture is is God-breathed. But these superlatives remind us that we ought to pay attention, that, that the Lord has something for us today. Today's message title is, Shall We Go On Sinning? Or Shall We Keep On Sinning? This is the rhetorical question at the beginning of chapter 6, where Paul launches into his gospel that's based on grace. Because if God reached down to us as sinners and saved us by grace, does that mean that we can keep on sinning? For those of you who have a theological background, this chapter links the doctrine of justification in chapter 5 with the doctrine of sanctification. How is it that God cleans us up from the inside? How is it that he, through his Holy Spirit, makes us holy? All right, if we just take it down to a layperson level, maybe you're a young or old disciple or a disciple maker. Here's the question that we're going to answer today. Does save by grace, save by God's free gift, mean that we can sin more? Does God's save by grace gospel mean that we as Christians have the license to sin more? And for those of us further along in our journey, maybe we've been walking with Christ for some time, but there's some sin patterns in our life. We keep on doing a cycle of sin. Maybe it's uh, materialism or covetousness or lust or some sort of immorality, and we just keep on going through this cycle. Today's chapter through the Holy Spirit is going to try to penetrate and break us free of the power of sin and death from our old life. Now, Pastor Chris, uh, in a lot of the sermons so far, he has given the disclaimer that this is a technical sermon. And I'm going to try not to be too technical, but like I said, there's some really deep doctrines here in the scriptures of justification, which means 
God legally declares us righteous in sanctification. How does God make you holy? Coming into this place doesn't necessarily change if we're holy or not. So I'm going to try to simplify it. And if we can go to the next slide, um, I'm going to break it down. We'll go one more. Uh, actually, you stay here. No, no, go. No, stay. No, stay. Stop. <laughs> Jessica, come on. Um, there are three keys here. One is there's one key question, one key response to that key question, and one application. Okay, Jessica, now you may go. I know you're eager. The key question is in Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we going to continue in sin that grace may abound? Next. One response. Paul's going to, this is the meat of the scripture. When we have the temptation to sin more because of God's grace, what is our response? This is the, the second part of what we're going to study today. And finally, the third is there's one application. Now that we've studied this scripture, how are we going to apply it? So one key question, one response, one application. Um, with that, um, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? And go to the first slide again. Okay, Romans 6, 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12. Oh, that's it. Okay, let's pray. Uh, Lord God, I thank you uh, for this word. I pray, God, that you would do something in our souls today as we hear a very pure gospel message, Lord. Let your Holy Spirit speak through your word and change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. Okay, so um, we're looking at the first key question. So Paul starts by saying, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, let me give you some context. I know some of us weren't here last week. Uh, last week in chapter 5, uh, Pastor Chris preached on that through one historical man, Adam, sin and death came into the world, and it affected all of us, even today. And through one historical man, Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead, we have life and righteousness. Not just physical life, but more importantly, eternal life and righteousness that was imparted to us and imputed to us. Through Christ the curse of Adam was reversed. And also in chapter 5, Paul said that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 
And that really goes against some of the thinking of the day, especially among the Pharisees. So let's pick it up um, really quick. I'm just going to read verse 19 through 21 of chapter 5. This is the text right before chapter 6 that we're studying today. It says in verse 19 of chapter 5, For by one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Verse 20, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's focus on verse 20 of 5. I put it up here. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You know, my friend who's a pastor said that sometimes he was in certain church circles and someone, let's say, oh, they'll say something crazy like, oh, God is leading me to divorce my wife because my true love is over here. And they'll say, what, what are you thinking? That's crazy. You can't do that. And he's like, well, I'm under grace, brother. There are literally those people who think and read this scripture and think that, oh, this is, this is fallen logic. The more I sin or my badness actually shows God's goodness. It's some strange dualism that because of God's grace, the more I sin, the more I accentuate God's goodness. And Paul, the writer of this book, he is coming from a Pharisee background. Okay, so he was a religious leader, and he understood the way the Pharisees thought. And he knew that they were going to ask this question. Oh, you're preaching this new concept of grace, which is quite different than any other religious system. That God, it's not about our good works, it's about God's grace and mercy and blood on the cross of Christ that frees us. He's anticipating that the People in his audience, both Jews and Greeks, are not going to accept this. And so he's going to say, this question that you have is coming from the wrong place. And so there's two thoughts here. When someone says, if I'm under grace, I can sin more. I can kind of live wild, go through my cycle of sin, and then on Monday morning or Saturday morning or Sunday morning, I can just confess I'm okay. There's two problems with this. Number one is an old-school works righteousness understanding of religion. And the second thing is a newer school thought that grace is a license to sin. Let me unpack those for a minute. The old-school works righteousness is basically boiled down to this. In life, you do a bunch of good deeds, you do a bunch of bad deeds, and then at the end, God's going to weigh it out. I had some friends from Saudi Arabia, and they used to try to convert me to Islam. Okay, it didn't work, apparently. Um, but I don't know how successful I was in converting them to Christianity. But on Tuesdays, they would try to teach me um, Islam. And on Thursdays, I would read through the book of John with them. And basically what they would say is exactly what I just said, is a works righteousness that God will put all your bad deeds on one side and your good deeds on the other and the whole idea that Paul is introducing, that, that, that God himself took on human flesh, came down, died on a cross, is completely foreign to that religious system. God would never do something like that. You think of Buddhism, okay? And some of us are coming from uh, areas of the world where Buddhism is prevalent. 
Buddhism, although it's not theistic, still has a similar concept. Good deeds, bad deeds. If your good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, you'll be reincarnated in a better way. You think of cults. You think of Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses. And I've had a lot of experiences in street evangelism or people coming to my door. And um, a man named Ray Comfort, I was under a training by him, and I've used this technique. But do you remember when the thief on the cross was next to Jesus? You guys remember that story? Okay. And he's there's two thieves, and one of them is like reviling Jesus, and the other one is saying, um, you know, we're getting what we deserve. And Jesus says to him, what? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Did that thief on the cross that repented, did he do any good works? Not that we know of, but yet he has salvation. When you're talking to uh, a Mormon or Jehovah Witness missionary, you could ask a question like this. If I were to, they're talking to you and they're engaging you and they're trying to get you to go to your their church or a Bible study, they'll, they'll start with a question like, do you want a better family? And I'll say, oh, let me ask you a question. If I were, like, let's say hit by a car right now and I was bleeding out on the street. Okay, sorry, little graphic, PG-13, okay? And I only had a few moments to live. What, what can your God do for me? And undoubtedly, they're going to use, okay, so your grammar people, they're going to use the modal perfect, which means they're going to say things like this. See, Jessica gets it. She was in my class. She was in my TESOL class, so you better get it. They will say things like this. Well, you should have gone to church. You should have helped people. And I say, no, 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 no. I'm dying. What can I do now? Well, you should have done this. What are they doing? They're listing the works you should have done. The truth is that the gospel that's introduced in Romans is unlike every other religious system because it's not about works that you do. It's about God's forgiveness of our sin through the blood of Christ. Does that make sense? So when when this question comes up, the loophole, it's old religious thinking, like how can God just forgive? The other issue is that religious people like to compare themselves to non-religious people to feel good about themselves. And so when, when the doctrine of grace, God's free gift, is introduced to this religious mind, they don't like it because it, it speaks to their their Phariseeism, or their feeling that I'm better than this person because I'm religious, I go to church, I'm not like these dirty sinners. This is why the question, shall we go on sinning that may, grace may, aga- may abound? The truth is, for the Pharisee mind, they cannot fathom how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And I want to say to you, regardless of what you've ever done in your life, no matter what sins you've participated in, those things that you're ashamed of, the love and the blood of Christ, Christ died on the cross to clean that sin. And that's how we have to look at it. So there's nothing that you've ever done in your life that is so bad that God is unable to forgive you. But that doesn't mean we should use his blood as a license to sin. Okay, let's talk about the second part. Okay, is everyone with me? A little meaty, but... That's old school work. No, 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 no. <laughs> Don't worry, Jessica and I go way back. I used to be, I used to be a professor and I was, I'm not an abusive professor. Okay, there's a new school. Sorry, Jessica. License to sin, okay? All right. It won't be the first time I've had to publicly apologize during a message, okay? 
Some people, you know, they say a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. When you hear of the doctrine that God, that God will forgive you, like if you're doing street evangelism, people will say things like, oh, so I can live like Hitler, and then at the end, ask for God's forgiveness, and I'm going to heaven. Now, let me ask you this. And when I talk to people on the street, tough guys, gang members, I'll say this. I said, do you think, would you let someone just use you and manipulate you? And they're like, no way. I said, God's not manipulated. God's not a chump. Do you understand that? When you ask the question, can you live like Hitler? And then at the end, now, if, 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 if someone has lived a horrible life and are truly contrite, God, it's God's business because all sin is against him. He can forgive whoever he wants to forgive. But the question is coming from a place like, can I just live like a wild man and in the end just ask for forgiveness? And there's some of us that live like that. We have this cycle. Uh, in, in By working in, I've worked in a lot of different areas and um, I'm aware of, uh, I'm just aware of Mexican mafia members who have a Catholic background and they might do unspeakable evils and then do confession and then they're, they go back to doing it. That is not what is meant to happen. All right, let's bring it down a level. Okay, kids. Cocoa Puffs example, okay, of this question, okay? Uh, what's your favorite sweet cereal? Come on, favorite one. All right, what's the best one, guys? Come on. Fruity Pebbles. No. Okay. All right. So now I got the kids' attention, okay? All right. We have to bring it down a level, okay? We're getting too deep here. Listen, quick story, okay? Based on truth. One of the great blessings you young people realize is that once you study, go to school, or, or get a job and have a vocation, you know, right now you just have to beg your parents for all the sweet cereal. You go in the sweet cereal aisle and you're like, oh, I want to get this. No. When you become a man, you get, you don't, don't worry about cars, houses. You get to buy whatever sweet cereal you want. Right? Okay. So anyway, I bought myself some Cocoa Pebbles. No, uh, yeah, Cocoa Puffs, whatever. And I have three kids at the time. And, uh, you know, this is dad's Cocoa Puffs. Don't touch it. Okay. So I go to work, you know, earning the bread for the family. I go home. The box is empty. And I'm like, who ate my Cocoa Puffs? Okay, and what happened is this, okay? Alexis had a big bowl of Cocoa Puffs, okay? And you know, I got to line them all up and really figure out what happened. Isaiah had a bowl of Cocoa Puffs, and this guy had two bowls of Cocoa Puffs. And so basically, you know, they broke my law. They broke God's law, the Eighth Commandment, because they stole, Okay. <laughs> And, you know, you know, there's going to be discipline, right? But what if I said, you know what, guys? I, I forgive you. Because I'm so mature, I'm going to forgive the trespass against me and that you stole my Cocoa Puffs. So I leave the room feeling pretty good about myself. And what do the kids do? They should be like, wow, dad is full of mercy and grace. But what Isaiah and Alexis do, they look at each other and said, we should have had two bowls. <laughs> What's the point? That's how we are as adults sometimes with God. Is that we think, instead of thinking like how merciful a guy like me is about his Cocoa Puffs, you think about how 
close to the line of sin can I get? How much can I get away with and still go to heaven? If you have that thought, it's very perverse. I've had the privilege of, my wife and I have been married for 22 years-ish. Okay, okay, so yeah, 22 years, okay, 23. And I've had the privilege of of helping people who are married, who are pre-married or dating, and they come to us and they say things like, oh, you guys are as old as the hills. You're as old as dirt. Give us some wisdom, you know, of dating and, and marriage. What would happen if a young man, okay, I was just with one at a restaurant last week. He and his, his new girlfriend, they're asking questions about relationships. What if he said something like this? Hey, um, hey, Mike, let me ask you a question, you know, in mixed company. How much cheating can I do in this relationship and still get married? <laughs> what do you guys think? Is that a good question? How much, you know, how much carousing do you think we can do and still have a good marriage? You'd say, that's a perverse question. <laughs> You're on the wrong step. It's equally perverse when we say, how much sin can we get away with? What movies can I watch? How much, um, well, there's kids here. How much stuff can I view? How much participation? How much partying? How much premarital activity can I participate in and still be saved? It's a perverse thought, isn't it? Let's go to the next slide. And this is what Paul's response is, obviously. By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? No way. No way, Jose. How could perish the thought? You can't think like that. As a Christian, or if you call yourself a Christian, you can't be thinking, well, what's the line and how far can I go down that line? It's not legalism if, if it's between you and the Holy Spirit and you make your own curfew or you make your own boundaries. In Hebrews 6, this is how God describes it. He says, if you've tasted of the word of God, which a lot of us have, and have fallen away, which some of us have, you need repentance. You need to turn around. Because when you don't, when you, when you just have in the back of your mind, God will forgive me, God will forgive me, as you're participating in, in theft and reviling and fornication or whatnot, when you keep doing that, the word of God says that you are crucifying him once again. It's like you're, with your disregard to what God has done with you, it's like you're whipping him yourself. That's why we don't say, how much sin can I get away with? When you're turning on your computer and you're, you're exercising your passions in an ungodly way, looking at images or watching content that is not God-honoring, you're whipping Jesus. It's a cycle of sin, and what Paul wants to do here is not condemn us, but to say, meditate on this, because you have to understand something. Verse 3, it says, do you not know, means pay attention, listen up. You were baptized in Christ Jesus, and you were baptized into his death. And then look in verse 5, for we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united in a resurrection like like his. So in some way, we have to identify our old sin nature. That Do you perceive yourself in terms of your identity and see yourself that you, you were on the cross with Christ and that when Christ went on the cross, he went on the cross for the sins that you do in secret? 
Do you get it? Do you meditate on that? It's not, it's not enough to say, oh, yeah, I get it. You know, the, to use a medical analogy, it's one thing to pass a, a uh, multiple exam, you know, multiple choice exam. It's another thing to do surgery. Do you understand? Like one is knowledge and another is real knowledge. God wants you to really understand that we were baptized, which means immersed. If you've ever been baptized, you go under the water and then you come up and it's a symbol that you are completely enveloped in the death of Christ. And when you come up, Christ through the Holy Spirit wants to live a new life in you. Do you really get that? Galatians 2.20 says, I, fill in your name, I have been crucified in Christ, and I, Mike, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself to me. I want to ask you, do you identify with Christ's death and resurrection? We have all sorts of ways to identify ourselves. I work at a university, and I was looking up a colleague. She works in a modern languages department. And typically, old school, you have your name, maybe your degrees, and then your title. And and she had that, but she had her name. And then under, in parentheses, this is the first line in a professional email is, ask me about my pronouns. Then, title, We find all sorts of ways to identify ourselves. We identify ourselves through our vocation. We identify ourselves through our our status in life, through our professions, through our diagnoses, through our problems. We have all sorts of ways that we identify ourselves. Paul is saying here, identify yourself with Christ and Christ crucified. Be honest with yourself. Is that how you identify yourself? I'm in a season of sending out resumes. Michael Chamberlain, Christ and Christ crucified. I don't write that. So it's easy in this world to forget that. But you need to view yourself. It's not just like emptiness. My son wears a cross. My other son wears a cross. It's kind of a strange thing because it's like having an electric chair like hanging from your neck. Because the cross is an instrument of death. But it's okay if it's a reminder that I've been crucified with Christ. Christ is no longer on this cross because he's alive and I'm alive in Christ. It's not just an empty symbol. Okay, verse 7 is another. Everyone okay? Deep, 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 huh? Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. This is the key. This is the linchpin here, verse 7, of how we get free from from this body of sin and death. We have to understand that when you're dead, certain laws no longer apply to you. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Um, There was a classic movie called Spartacus, and uh, a newer movie, not that new, that's how old I am, but called Gladiator, and it's kind of similar themes, but it's about a slave in the Roman Empire who couldn't buy his way out. And there's a line in the movie that says, for the, for the slave, death is the only freedom. It means you're a slave until death. And the concept is similar here. Chuck Smith tells a story that 
a lot of people have certain addictions and, and, you know, a number of you work in social services and we work with people who have addictions or people who have recidivism with, with homelessness or whatnot. Um, and so what happens is sometimes that we just feel so enslaved to this thing. I've had members of my family who are addicted to various substances. And if you've ever have a family member or been in that, it's a tough world to get out of. You know, you try to minister and God can deliver people. I've seen people delivered. Uh, I used to have a guy that used to go to my old church that would come into the church service. He, he, was, the, he was known as the town drunk and he would just pace in front with his, with his bike helmet and muttering to himself. And I remember thinking, wow, this is, his name was Jeff. And he was known in the city of Orange as the town drunk. But, but we would welcome him. we say, hey, Jeff, you can't pace in front of the pastor, <laughs> you know, drunk like that. And I remember witnessing to him and thinking, ah, this is, he's not even in his right mind. But he would quote scripture to me sometimes. And I was like, and we prayed for him, and he, God just broke it off of him. And I saw him over seven years sober, and then he moved to Arizona, and he's still, to my knowledge, sober. So God can break you free. Chuck Smith tells a story about someone who is, um, I mean, it's an illustration that they're so trying to get their next fix. I'm from New Hampshire. Heroin is a huge problem. Someone just trying to get their fix, their hands, their feet, their mind, their eyes, all their money. Everything is about getting the next hit. They cross the street. They forget about the traffic. They get hit. They're dead. Is the dealer going to make a sale now? (laughs) If the dealer says, hey, you want some more? No, he's free. Why? He's dead. (laughs) If you're dead, you're free of addiction. So when Christ died for your sins, that sin was nailed to the cross. The sins that you were using your hands for to, to click the mouse at evil or to roll up the joint or whatever it is, that's been nailed to the cross. You need to identify with that. You might say to yourself, this is just who I am. You know what I mean? We get discouraged. We keep on doing the same cycle. This is who I am. You're almost right. This is who you were. But that person was nailed on the cross with Christ. That's your old man. And we have to live in a newness of life. So Christ died and I died as well. Okay, let's go to the last. Everyone with me? Let's go to the last one. So what do we do from here? Verse 11. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Some other translations say not consider, but you must reckon. You like that word reckoning? It seems more dramatic. You have to reckon yourself dead. You have to come, you have to wrestle with this scripture and realize that the way you have been living is not what God has for you. And that he has justified you and he's going to see, he's going to complete the work he started in you. When you have belief and faith in Christ, he justifies you. He says, you know, he's a legal, it's a legal word. He declares you, you're now righteous. But in your body, in your hands, in your feet, you've trained your body to live for idolatry or live for yourself. And so God is going to retrain you and give you power through the Holy Spirit within. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine that you committed a crime and you really committed it and that you were put into prison for that crime and you had to be in 
the prison for many, many years to pay for the crime. And then out of the mercy of the governor, now governors have power, right? They can commute sentences. Let's say that you had written him a letter and you said, I'm really sorry for what I've done. I can't change it. I feel terrible about the people I've hurt. Um, it'd be, <laughs> please forgive me. It'd be awesome if you could commute my sentence. And what if the governor says, your sentence is commuted? You're free. But you've been institutionalized so long that you don't know how to live outside of it. You, you, you talk to people who work in the social services. My, uh, I, we have a number, we have some in this church and, and so on. They can remove the door off of your prison cell. They can, not only that, the governor has written you a check and says, actually, you have new digs. You have this new, you can stay in the mansion and here's a check and you can live a different life. But because we're used to, hey, these are where all my boys are. We, this is where we play cards. You know, this is, we hang out. Even though God has declared us free, we've trained ourselves to hang out with the wrong crowds and do the wrong things. So even though God has removed the bars and say, says you're free, sometimes we want to hang out in the wrong places. Does that kind of make sense? And so God wants us to get this passage inside of us to retrain us that we need to renew our mind. Romans 12, you've heard of it, 1 and 2. It says to present your body as a living sacrifice and to also transform our mind through the reading of the word, right? The word, it says here, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, verse 12, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as sins of instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. We have to rededicate our bodies to God. Some of you, you've been, God knows, the Holy Spirit is here. He knows the sins that you've been doing. He knows how you've been using your mind to think of the wrong kind of things. He knows that you've used your hands and your feet and other parts of your body for the wrong kinds of passions. Now, last night, and I have permission to share this, like, um, you know, Josh shared his some of his testimony about how he had one foot in the world and one foot in sin. And, you know, every, all of us have struggled with these passions and talking about, you know, going out partying, coming to church hungover or whatnot. But what I really respect about what um, what Josh shared is there's a repentance and a, and you shared last night about um, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. And, and, and that God had removed things for you. Now, when you have someone younger in the faith or you have a young kid, the parents remove things for you. But when you get older and more mature, he says, let me tell you how I'm thinking. And I want you to remove some of these things yourself. And that's what God's talking about here is that, you know, it's God loves you. He knows where you're at. He's going to remove some things. He's going to grace, he's going to grace you and he's going to save your life. Uh, so, so you can have a right relationship. But now he's challenging you as more mature adults that, hey, you know, I didn't give you these hands to consume these beverages. I didn't give you these eyes to do certain things. I want you to dedicate the mind that I've given you, the eyes that I've given you, your intellect that I've given you, and I want you to use these hands to do surgery for underprivileged children in the name of Christ. 
And I know that's in your heart. I want you to do surgery. You know, doing surgery in the inner ear is not small business. And to use this metaphor one more time, like I said, there's one thing to take an anatomy class. I have a bunch of students right now, and they're they're starting their medical school. It's one thing to know things at that level. It's another thing to perform surgery. It's one thing to know this doctrine at one level. It's another thing to know who God is and to start to say, how am I going to give my hands and feet to Christ? My uh, my wife's mother, you, you might, you, you've heard this testimony before, some of you, but, you know, my wife's mother, she was given up in Taiwan, pretty much sold into prostitution. Young girls were not, uh, some young girls were not welcome, and they just gave her away, and she was abused severely, um, you know, tied to a pole, take care of these kids, and just used. And when she got older, and, and my wife was a baby, the, the evil family said, oh, she'll be a good one. So she escaped to Taipei, and she ran an escort club, high level, chief of police, politicians, all sorts of evil. Uneducated person, street person, knows nothing else but this dark life. This is a real story. This is my mother-in-law. I'm like, oh, she'll get converted on her deathbed or something. You know, this is too dramatic. Like, so much trauma, so much stuff that we've been through. Never underestimate what God can do. She had a very simple faith, and she saw, anyway, in time, she realizes that Christ is real. The love of God is real. She internalized this, and she says, the, you know, drunkenness, drunkards won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Revilers, that's my whole life. So what did she do? She quit. You got to understand, someone, this is all she's known her whole life. She quit, and what she did is, instead of using her mind or intellect to encourage drunkenness and prostitution, she gave that and she started working taking care of older people who were sick, who were in, in palliative care. What did she do? She gave her members of her body, her hands, her feet, her mind, that was used for the things of the devil, the things of the flesh, and she gave it over to God. He wants to do the same with you. There might be some things, maybe one in your hands or one in your feet, you have one foot in, one foot out. God wants you to get all in with him. I, I mean, there's, there's so much I can go on about, but like, you know, David Yee, the, the, the man who, who gave our prayer today, he, you've shared this publicly, so I know I have the liberty. He, he, he's a very humble guy. Uh, he's all right. I mean, <laughs> most of the time. But anyway, he's come up here and he's, he's talked about that, you know, what God has given him in terms of, of, the ability to use his mind to make money, to work hard. He has to participate in the things of God. He has to put his feet in his hands. He has to put himself in the right position or else he'll fall prone to covetousness. Do you understand? Here's a walking example of someone who says, you know what? These hands, these, this head, my body, I'm going to put myself, instead of going over here so I can build my little kingdom, I'm going to put myself over here and build God's kingdom. You shared, you had a really rough day about, um, you know, whatever test you, that didn't go so hot and all that stuff. That night, he was, this was last week, he's watching kids, you know, in Sheldon's garage so we can do a, a, a marriage and family night so we could bless couples. That's commendable. That's saying, God, I'm yours. I'm a living sacrifice, use me. And God will honor that and he will use that. Does that make sense? So that is the summary, really, 
of this passage. Um, I hope you got something out of it. I do want to read it again, and I want you just to contemplate the one response is that we're not supposed to look at this grace that God's given us and use it in a way that is just to have a license to sin. But instead, he wants us to identify with the death and resurrection of Christ. We were baptized into that. We were immersed into that. And then God wants you to reckon with him. He wants you to identify what areas of life are you still holding on to your old sin patterns. He wants that. He wants to take that away. Look what he did to my mother-in-law. He can do it for you as well. Let me read the passage and then I'll pray for us. Let the words permeate your soul. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your word today. And God, if there's some of us here Maybe we thought we were okay with you, or maybe we just know that we're sinners. Lord, please forgive us. God, please please forgive us of our sins, Lord. Cleanse us with your blood. Make me a new creation in Christ through belief in you, Lord. And for those of us who have been in sin, who are in this habit of sin, God, would you break that off of us, Lord? Church, in the, in the quietness of our, your heart, just take a moment and confess what God wants you to confess. The Holy Spirit is here. He's, he's willing to say, I'm going to nail this to the cross for you. Lord, thank you that we've been baptized and united with your death and resurrection. Help us to live differently in a newness of life. In Jesus' name, amen.